Do you know this is Taika Waititi's fifth movie ever? The trend continues, right? Although not all trends continue, but I'll get to that in a minute. I don't actually have much to say about the behind the scenes on this one. They were kind of debating certain things about the construction of it, but ultimately, after they brought him in, they were like, yeah, sure. And originally this was going to be a fairly straightforward, you know, Doom of Asgard, the final destruction of Asgard, setting up the, the lead into Infinity War, right? And the follow-through and Endgame. Okay. The problem is, once he get involved, he gave them, well, he gave them a demo reel. i, I got to talk about this, because Mr. Waititi is someone who's always said that he prefers artistic works, right? Not commercial works. That's one of the reasons why he stays away from big-budget things. But he really wanted to work on this film and with the MCU. Now, we can infer why. We, it's, it's, it's a matter of... Uh, preference and uh, we don't know why we'll just go ahead and say that we don't actually know why but he went into this so hard that he actually made a demo reel specifically set to immigrant song <laughs> you know I, uh, you know that that right and apparently they really liked it so they're like okay sure and he was like sweet can i be creative with it and they're like yeah this is phase three, after all. You gotta run everything by the boss, but you can be creative with it. Sweet! And he just went nuts with it. And that's why the tone of this film is kinda wacky. Good. Don't mistake me, I really like this film. Um, but I have to say something, real quick. I have heard a couple of people complain about the fact that Thor is suddenly turned into a comedy, and I have to disagree with that statement. Thor's always been a comedy. Oh, don't mistake me, He's, he has varying tones of seriousness, but this has plenty of seriousness, too. No, I mean, look at Thor 1, for God's sakes. You are nothing before the mighty wrath of Thor. Or how about when they back the car up into him? I mean, come on, Thor has always been a comedy. It has always had the tonality and approach of a comedy flick, with some serious Shakespearean stuff wrapped around it. It's just they dialed it up to 11 this time. The tone is set off immediately. Because we got this skeleton and him like, hey, this is when I met you. Skeleton just like, oh. And then he goes to see Clancy Brown. I mean, searcher. Search, searcher? Searcher? Search. Ragnarok guy. And uh, it's funny because there are many types of humor. And one of the only types of humor I happen to be good at is you have the joke guy and you have the, the straight man, right? Now, that's me. I'm the straight man. Uh, the one who just plays it completely straight and normally while the other person's being wacky or ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? That was that was Searcher's role here. He's just he's just I will then rise with power beyond Is, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, I'm spinning. So we know the tone of what we're getting into pretty much immediately. You cannot stop Ragnarok. You know Just random thought of the day. If this hadn't all happened if Odin lived and Hela stayed locked away and whatever. Wouldn't uh, Thanos just have popped by and wiped out half of the people in Asgard anyways? Pretty sure he could. It's Thanos. Just, just food for thought. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so then Heimdall's missing. He's, he's, he's been busy. We'll, we'll get to him in a second. We see Matt Damon. Nice little theater uh, cameo there. And you'll notice the one and only thing that they take seriously. It's, it's all this to joke, like, oh, yes, yes, and I, I'm, the snake thing, the snake thing was, was hilarious, and blah, blah, blah. But then there's this one bit, 
I didn't do it for him. It's the one part that stays in there. And the one part that gets Loki's attention and he actually responds to completely seriously. Loki's been on a character arc since he was first introduced. This is just, well, honestly, if we're being completely real with ourselves, this is the conclusion of that arc. This is the end of it right here. Not not this scene, but this film. I'll get back to that. <clears throat> There's... <laughs> Loki... Talk, Loki has apparently been a terrible ruler, and I want to talk about that briefly, too. Remember that bit where Thor said the throne would suit you ill, brother? I think we have finally gotten the chance. Loki has finally been able to prove how good or bad of a leader he would be. And he's awful. Everything in it, He's basically what's happened. Let me, let me put this into real-life terms. All of his vassal states are in rebellion and are infighting. And there's some disaster going off that he's barely even aware of. Now, I point that out because there's a background element that's established in this film. And that background element is Xandar. It was actually supposed to be in the film. They were supposed to show it. Because during the events of this film is when Thanos hits the Nova Corps and takes back the uh, Power Stone, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Power. And so space is here. Yeah, I'm, I'm right, I'm right. And you kind of get the impression that if Loki was actually a good leader, he, he'd be kind of on top of this stuff. The fact that he isn't, well, that means he's just one of those people who's in it for the benefits of rule, not to rule. And that, well, I mean, that does kind of fit the character. Loki's never struck me as being a good leader. He'd actually be an excellent member of a team, and he and his brother make a hell of a team when they actually work together, as they do in both the previous Thor film and in this one. And arguably in the next one we're going to be talking about, too. But, uh, yeah. Oh, on the off chance that you didn't watch the previous video, I'm doing these out of order on purpose because, in my opinion, Black Panther is more of a setting, you know, putting pieces into position. Whereas this film, the mid credit scene is literally happening minutes before the beginning of Infinity War. So it's a direct lead-in. So I feel that it, this film works better, in narratively speaking, immediately before. It also, tonality fits better, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So, Loki's a terrible ruler. They go down to Earth. We have a quick thing about Des and Troy. He got them from Texas. <laughs> I don't think you could buy fully automatics like that. I don't know, maybe he just stole them. Whatever, whatever. It's a joke. Uh, I like how the, these random people are like, Hey, it's, it's Thor, hi! Can we get a screen, a snapshot, or a, a selfie, selfie? Real quick, Kurt, cool. We're sorry Jane dumped you. <laughs> no, no, we dumped. And so, she's reduced to a one-off gag. There's, I've talked before about the kind of history behind that and how there was some behind-the-scenes drama. It has been argued that she would be much more willing to come back under the Phase 3 leadership than she was in Phase 2. We'll see if there, anything happens that going forward. She did come back for a very brief cameo in Endgame, so who knows. Anyways, then uh, we have a wonderful bit with Doctor Strange. He works really, really well here. He's already magical-tinted, and the Thor thing has already been more on the mystical side of things. So him just being on top of this works very well, especially since he is, well, he's a full-tilt sorcerer who is much, much better at magic than Loki or, well, any of the Asgardians, really, just to be completely blunt. Like, Asgardians are nice and durable, and they have long lives, but uh, Doctor Strange is a really good mage. 
So that just kind of bypasses those benefits. Anyways, <clears throat> now uh, I also really like the, the dynamic between them. Of course, the, the mid credit scene is literally just a cut from this, so what can you do? But still, good movement and good continuity. As always, I do appreciate it when these things have contigu contiguousness with each other. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, okay, I'll help you find Odin. Take a bit of your hair. Okay, there we go. You might want your umbrella. And, oh, yeah, I'll need Loki back. Ah! <laughs> I've been falling for 30 minutes! Sorry, as I've mentioned several times this year, you guys have asked me to look at several comedic works. I don't know what to do with comedic works. I can't just repeat the joke, so all I can do is kind of ignore them. For the most part. You'll notice we're already rapid-firing through like 30 minutes of the film already. <clears throat> this then leads to a massive shift in tone where Odin dies. Yay, that's that's always fun. I do love, however, though, he makes a point of saying, I love you, my sons, plural. There's no, there's no like, like he, he, he doesn't do it fully and formally, but he embraces Loki in his final moments, which is important. And you'll notice it does affect Loki. He reacts to that hard, like, like, well, and of course, Hiddleston's a great, you know, facial actor, so he gets across all of it. And they also talk about Norway as being home. Yeah, that'll come through in the in the future. So then Hela shows up, and Hela is the weakest part of this film by a huge margin. See, let's let's look back a bit. So we've got Adrian Toomes, very well fleshed out, interesting, amazing, dynamic villain, and then we've got Eric Killmonger, an amazing, interesting, you know, motive, fleshed out, three dimensional monster. And then we've got Ego, who at least we we saw a decent amount about him, and they put a lot of characterization into him. Uh, let's see, before that we had Zemo, who was very understandable and was caught in the cycle of the theme of the entire film. Okay, okay. Um, and then we have Hela. She's evil. Like, that, that's it. She's evil. That's her shtick. There's nothing there. There's nothing to Hela. There really is nothing to Hela. It's, it's disappointing. It's discouraging. I've actually theorized before that the only reason she's in the film is because they needed an antagonist. And they're like, all right, have her be there. They don't flesh her out. There's no dimensions there. She's completely one-dimensional. I like killing because it's fun. I get bored when I'm not killing. And everything should always be about me. She also has no patience, no tolerance, no nothing. She doesn't even actually want to rule like some other conquerors do. She just wants to kill. She just wants to go and massacre. She's cool with having an undead army because it's not like they matter. The only thing she so shows any concern about whatsoever is her frickin' wolf. In fairness, it's Fenris. I mean, how many of you play Dark Souls, am I right? But still, that's it. There is nothing to her. And that's a damn shame, because her actress is amazing and does a decent job with her. And she looks a lot better when her hair is just dangling, I think. The, the whole spiked helmet thing just didn't work for me at all. Anyways, so, how did she break Mjolnir? No, real question, because this is right after she's released, and they keep saying her power is growing, but one of the first things she does is she breaks Mjolnir. How? Now, I know what you're thinking. Lord, duh, she's the god of death. Yeah, no, that's that's not... You can't kill... That, that doesn't even begin to apply, even by super, superhero comic logic. The implication is just that she is that powerful, and of course we needed Thor to suffer a serious loss, and that's actually a pretty serious loss, but... I, really? That's what you had? I mean, it wouldn't even be that hard to just say that she took 
Mjolnir with her, and he didn't have it, and now he has absented on Sakaar. I mean, it's not, he could reach out and just hold his hand out for, like, hours and hours, days, possibly years, and it still wouldn't show up, right? So it's, it would still divorce him. Anyways, I'm sorry, I'm talking in circles. It's just, it's so stupid. Why? Why does she destroy the hammer? And I, I, okay, let me also talk one other thing here. Her kit, her, her moveset, her powers or whatever, are very well demonstrated in this film. She can generate this black metal from nothing. Now, she generally does it in the form of blades, but she can do it in these form of giant spikes. She does the searcher at the end. She can make the axe that she gave to Scourge. So she can, she can generate metal. Okay, that's her moveset. Now, we actually discussed this during the stream discussion. It's kind of indicative because you think her power is very simple, but given the speed and rapid-fire way she can do that, and she has regeneration, by the way. This is actually shown very, very briefly, but very clearly every now and again, every time someone fights her. They'll get a hit in. Like, she's full-on impaled at one point and just pulls it right out, and there's like this little flash of red, and then it seals right back up. So she can regenerate. That's probably the Asgardian power talking. And she can generate the metal. And that does make her a pretty high-tier threat, relatively speaking. Like, she's no ego, but you can see why she would be something that would be very, very deadly. So I'm with it, but none of that has to do with destroying Mjolnir. I'm sorry for hammering this point in, <laughs> but it's just, it's such an important part of the film, and it, whatever, whatever. Then, to continue the, the tone of the theme being, uh, she shows up and I counted. It is 18 seconds when we see Volstagg and Fandral, and then she kills him. Eight. Seconds. That's it. That's their screen time. And that's not true. They get hit a second time, which adds another two seconds. So it's like 20 seconds total screen time. 18 seconds when they're. and then they're dead. Which I also feel is a huge misstep. I'll discuss uh, how I think they could have done that better in a moment. This leads us to Sakar. Question for you guys. As always, love to hear your thoughts on this. Do you think it's natural or artificial? The story they tell in the Willy Wonka thing is that the Grandmaster was the first one there, and then he, you know, the planet happened, and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, there's a really vague impression that he is a celestial like Ego, since, well, I mean, he is in the comics, but more to the point, um, actually, I guess he's not really in the comics, is he? It's just the way he acts. He has that same sort of connected but detached. I care, but in a completely alien sort of a way, you know. I loved your mother, that's why I killed her, you know. <laughs> that kind of a thing, right? <clears throat> not, not quite correct. Anyways, I bring this up, though, because I like the idea that it's an artificial nexus. That it's literally a place where all of the random... We see the jump gates, right? And that's, one of, that's the, the common way everyone travels around the galaxy. We see this in Captain Marvel. Uh, we see that... I know that's not out yet. Um, we see that in Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, and it's referenced in Infinity War, I think. It's Infinity War or Endgame. I know they reference it. The point being, what if all of the random junk that goes through those that isn't supposed to kind of ends up here? Like, all of these port And, of course, there's probably portal magic all over the place. I, I just... As weird as this may sound, I like the idea of this place literally being a nexus for all of the portals everywhere. All of the dimensional gates everywhere all lead to this one constructed place. Now, it doesn't have to be constructed. It could be a natural nexus point. But I, I like the constructed point better. It could also be kind of both. Well, I guess no, it couldn't. Never mind, never mind. I take that back. 
So, just what do you think? I also admit I like the idea that the Grandmaster showed up and started building up the world out of it. I also have to admit I love the cultural ramifications and possibilities of a world that literally produces nothing. In fact, cannot produce anything, and therefore is 100% dependent on imports. It's just they don't decide what those imports are. So all of a sudden scavenging and salvaging becomes the basis of the entire economic structure. That's kind of a cool idea, I have to admit. And of course there are some people who come and go. We do notice units, and she does mention the idea of going to Xandar, which again was supposed to be in the original script. So it's not like everyone is trapped here. It's just a cool thing. I love it. I love it. I wish they'd, they'd developed it more. But anyways... So, this is when Tessa Thompson shows up as Valkyrie. Did you know it could have been... I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I actually looked up a pronunciation guide and I said, no, I'm not going to screw that up. Uh, Lupita is her first name. She played Nakia back in uh, Black Panther. She was actually in the running to play Valkyrie. I think she could have done a good job of it. As I said, she's a pretty talented actress. But I do think Tessa Thompson does a really good job with it, too. So, you know, take what we get. Sorry, looking at my notes. I like this film. I do. It probably has, in my opinion, the weakest script of Phase 3. And that's saying something, because Civil War's here, too. And as I think I tried to highlight, Civil War script was very, very weak. But the problem with Civil War script was a byproduct of meddling and changing politics and all sorts of that crap, the stuff I talked about earlier. This script just feels weak. So they got these things called obedience discs, right? You just kind of... Slap that sucker on there and you're good, right? These are nonsense. <laughs> These are a plot convenience. That's exactly what they are in just the most fundamental way. And, of course, they're there for humor factor as well. Please explain to me how these things work on Asgardians in general. And Asgardian, who happens to be the god of thunder, after he awakens his thunder powers, because, remember, that happens during the match between him and Hulk. So... Explain that one to me. By all means, I'm listening. Like, I'm all for technology equaling magic. I've talked about that many times. Those things are nonsense. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I love the bit where... Uh, he's, he's in the chair, and he's going through the thing... And I was listening, I never caught this before. They literally play, I think, two bars of music from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when they start the little thing there. It's just... So I mentioned here my thoughts on the Grandmaster. And I, it's really hard to put a finger on him. Obviously, it's just Jeff Goldblum, so I mean, duh. But it's really hard to understand the man. He's just so irreverent and disconnected and... There's there's just something immeas immeasurably inconsistent about him. Now, it does make him very alien, and I think it works quite well. I'm wondering if any of you kind of get me when I say he reminds me so much of Ego. A little less deliberately malicious, but still definitely coming from the same plane, if you follow me. There's also a new meet Korg, who's awesome. There's this bit here. Okay, so I'm going to talk for a second. I finally have something to really talk about. There's just joke, 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 joke. Wait! Why do you think Odin stopped after conquering Nine Realms? Now, 
I've given my theory many times. This goes all the way back to Thor 1, if you've watched my whole rumination series on the MCU. I've given my theory many times that the Nine Realms is basically the local sector. Maybe even just the local cluster. Really small scale, relatively speaking, on the galactic scale. And that, so this, the neighborhood of the, of Sol, of Earth, is the neighborhood that Asgard, it take, you know, has sovereignty over. And that's always made sense to me, and it's this film gave me another reason to think that. I like to think, so as always, I'm curious why you think. So let me start with that. Why do you think he just stopped? But I like to think that he was on a full conquest, and he didn't stop for morality's sake. He didn't stop because he was sick of the war. He stopped because he probably started to see that he was getting too big, noticed the other bigger things out there, and was like, eh, let's rein it back. I mean, you don't want the war weariness score to go too high, right? <laughs> but, okay, all EU4 jokes aside, the fact is, and I know I've, this just keeps coming up in these ruminations this year, if you're building in power, economically, militarily, personally, nationally, galactically, you need to be careful about that growth because you don't want to get so big that you're noticed by the much bigger, much more dangerous folk and yet still small enough that you can't defend yourself against them. I like to think that he looked out at the greater galaxy past the Nine Realms and he saw the Kree or the Xandar or given how old this was, he might have actually seen the Titans back when they were at their height. These are only the big boys we know about. There's probably other ones out there. Oh, I, I for, also forgot the... Oh, I can't think what they're called. Oh, the shapeshifters in Cat Marvel. They, there's, it could also be them, because this is a while ago. You know, he could have seen how big and how dangerous the galaxy was. It was like, we're done, we're done. We're good, let's consolidate. Let's consolidate. You'll notice almost every time there's not a firm leader in charge, the, the realms start to rebel, too. That happens here in this very movie. Uh, Thor talks about that to Loki at the beginning. So you can kind of get the impression, too, that they are not what you'd call happy vassals. Anyways. So, uh, of course, on a pit like Sakaar, they'd have gladiatorial games. And, uh, okay, so this is another big one I do want to talk about. Uh, Thor shows up, or Hulk shows up. Thor versus Hulk. Hulk's hammer is awesome. Loki's like, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. Lord of Thunder, awesome electrical thing. Really shows what he can do. Basically gains a level, functionally speaking. Gets defeated by the stupid plot device thing. At 53 minutes and 33 seconds into what is a little over a two-hour film, Hulk shows up. Now, I know this is basically impossible, especially in a modern film. Why, why, did, why was he in the marketing at all? I know that sounds like such a strange statement, but hear me out for a second, okay? Imagine if we didn't know. I want you to put yourself into that mindset. You're watching Thor Ragnarok. It's about Ragnarok. Hela's back. We're stranded on Shakar. Um, the Valkyries there, Loki's there, you know, there's just, there's all this thing, Heimdall's being a badass because he's awesome. Imagine if this whole film was presented from that light, and so you're sitting there in the theater, and at the 53 minute, 33 second mark, the Hulk shows up, and nobody knew he was going to be in the film. Imagine what that reveal is like, and the power of that all of a sudden. The... Because if you pay attention to the film, and I'm sure you were, there are zero indications that it's the Hulk. 
other than the fact that it's some big champion, which it could be anything, so that doesn't mean anything, and the fact that right before he shows up, and I do mean seconds before, they call him the, you're incredible, and then he shows up, right? That's it. No indications. Now, that's important, because in the several of the panning shots immediately after, we see the audience members having Hulk banners and Hulk masks, and everyone's all thinking, there are so many ways they could have shown that it was the Hulk before they showed him, but they saved it. In the film, as a creative decision, they saved it. Why not pull it out of the marketing? Now, I know that's a different decision. I know that the director and the creative staff don't decide the marketing side of things. But I, I, to this day, I think that was a gargantuan misstep. The power of that moment is completely sapped by the fact that it was the main marketing thrust. Heimdall's still amazing. I'm going to talk about Scourge right here, really quickly, because they just keep going back to Asgard and then going back to the main plot and then going back to Asgard. And I just want to talk about it in one bundle, that's okay. Scourge has more character than Hela. What the hell? I mean, granted, he's played by Bob. I can't think of his name. Carl Urban, there we go. And he's a good actor, but I mean, it's not like she's a bad actress, for God's sakes. She's an excellent actress, like, whatever. And uh, he even has a character arc. And his hesitance, he, he, he's got this whole thing, I want to prove, you know, I want to prove that I'm, I'm worthwhile. I want to show my worth. I want to shine. You know, I, I've, I've always been the, the number 15 guy, right? Nobody cares about me. Nobody knows me. And he comes across as just this bumbling little idiot who has always wanted to be something more than a bumbling idiot. So he he hat, hat latches on to Hela mostly as a you know survival mechanism, but as he's going with her, he starts to think this could be it. This could be my chance to really show what I can do. And so she says, "I need an executioner." By the way, I hate to correct you, Hela. It's actually executor, the person you have that enforces your will and goes into that's your executor. Your executioner kills people for you. I know it's confusing because you're the goddess of death. You got the lens going on. It's okay. I mean, most of us have rose-tinted goggles. You have kind of this green-blackish thing going on. Might want to wash that, too. Point being, I do like Scourge's presentation because he doesn't come across as a good person. But he comes across as someone who isn't actually bad and is just kind of going along with it. And if we're being honest... A lot of people who've done bad things historically in real life were not bad people. They were people following bad orders. So that's fun to think about. Meanwhile, we cut back to Hulk. Very limited. Although we do find out why he's there. Stay. I actually find myself wondering if he really does want to stay. What do you guys think? I mean, I know he's got a very simplistic mindset, but do you think he would rather go back with Thor? Or do you think he'd rather stay here? Just food for thought. Obviously, he's. I mention that because the only time he mentions it, he's basically joking. And, of course, he wants to stay with his friend, but he could leave with his friend, too. So, just food for thought. Let me just say my thoughts here very quickly. I don't think he's happy here. Not really. I think he's content here. I think he's carved a little corner for him. But I don't think he likes being what he is, which is effectively a slave. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Prisoner with job. Sorry. Grandmaster, didn't mean to get that wrong. So Heimdall's eyes, he borrows, he, he basically grants Thor his vision briefly, which is an awesome power. And can I just say really quick that Heimdall's superpower is insane? 
Like, we all just kind of take it for granted, and unfortunately he's going to die in the next film. Spoilers. But, I mean, just his... That is one of the most amazing superpowers ever. The ability to actually reach out and just see anywhere. Just just anywhere. That, that's, that's crazy. That's absolutely insane. <sighs> Sorry. Point break. I do like that joke. Friends Day. Um... I do like how Thor does seem to be a, a relatively decent friend to Hulk, which makes sense, which is then amusing because then he is actually a really terrible friend to Banner, which makes sense. I mean, I hate to say that, but Thor isn't the most diplomatic or kindest or nicest or anything. In fact, I hate to say this, but he's also not a very good leader. He doesn't have the the Captain America thing going on either, so it makes sense that he would kind of bumble with someone like Banner because he just doesn't know how to deal with that. I really feel bad for Banner, especially in those first few. He he you could he does a good job. Ruffalo is a good actor, and he does a good job of portraying someone who is do basically having a continuous freakout because he just lost two years of his life, just like that, and he doesn't remember it. There's there's nothing there. There's no other hand on the wheel. He's just in in the in the trunk, and that is nightmarish. I, I don't know how many of you have ever actually experienced memory loss over a period of time, uh, like going in for surgery or something like that. There's just something very unsettling about it. Now, I say that. I have extremely good memory. I remember when I was three. Not very well. It isn't until I was five I have good memories. But <laughs> point being, I have a very good memory, and, I, and the thought of just losing chunk of my life to me is horrifying because that would be so alien to what I normally am. I don't know if that's true for all people, but you've got to admit, losing two years of your life would be pretty messed up. So, there's this really wonderful scene where Loki reaches up and forces her to relive her memory of the flight of the Valkyries. It's probably one of the most impacting scenes in the entire film. There's no dialogue, because there doesn't have to be. It's just all of the Valkyries versus Hela, and them all losing. The only one who lives is her, the woman I, I call Valkyrie. That's... Yeah, that's that's messed right there. That is very, very messed. And brilliantly done, beautifully done. The, the slow-mo, the animation, the style of it, it it's, it's excellent. It's, I, have, I have nothing else to add. It's just excellent. So there's this nice bit here uh, <laughs> where Loki shows up. And what reaches out to Loki... Every time, in every film, is when you just you, you, you drop all the pretenses and you just honestly reach out to him as a, as a person. It's, it's interesting in its own right. But then Loki decides to go ahead and fit into his old pattern. Why do you think he does that? Honest question. Because, as I think the films have shown, and as this very film shows, that's not really Loki. He's not really evil. He's not. He's mischievous. He's chaotic. But he just doesn't that, that's not him so why does he lapse back into that pattern now i have my own theory and it is basically what thor posits that it's the pattern it's the normal pattern it's what he knows and it's, so it's what's comfortable so he just does what he knows hey yep sorry just like usual and it's thor who then completely walks around it's like yeah no i um i, I i'm i've moved past this loki i thought you had too and as it turns out, Loki has 
move past this because he does show up to rescue them all and he does stay with Thor in the end. And that's interesting considering what it costs him. There's a wonderful quote. You, all, you, you always be the god of mischief, but you could be so much more. So, then we get to see a little bit of what Valkyrie can really do in combat when she starts jumping between spaceships and destroying them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to add to that. Just, okay. Um, and then, of course, Topaz dies to fireworks. Nice job. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of... I'm sorry, the finale of this film is actually excellent, but I have very little to say about the why and the wherefore, because most of it is fairly self-apparent. Um, so, you know, she has this big speech with Thor. Where do you think all this gold came from? Yeah, I know, the Nine Realms. I already talked about my theory on that one. And takes his eye, which, you know, okay, showing the cost. Hair, eye, I'm with it. Banner, so the things are looking bad. Usually in superhero films and in films in general, this is when the cavalry shows up. And it's like, okay, yes, rescue the day. So the first cavalry, because there's multiple. There's actually four. First one that shows up is Banner, who dies? No, he's fine. He turns into the Hulk. And he beats the crap out of Fenris. But then, oh God, everything's going bad again. But it's okay, because the second cavalry shows up. Korg and Loki. And the transport. It's okay. We got a big transport ship. We can haul all like the thousand, one thousand Asgardians that are left. God, I, th I think they're actually approaching, like if not for their lifespans, they would probably be approaching an endangered species at this point. Maybe they are anyways. I don't know. I mean, they can still be killed. Uh, anywho, <clears throat> it's okay. I'm sure they won't lose half the number and then half the number again. That would be awful. So then... It's like, oh god, what do we do? And then Thor's starting to freak out, and he's getting beaten the crap out of him by Hela, and he has this wonderful moment where he gets to say his final goodbyes to Odin, basically. And Odin tells him, look, are you the god of hammers? What do you mean? No, the, ha the hammer was intended to help you. It was a tool, like all tools are. You, you're stronger than I am. So then the God of Thunder shows up, and that's Cavalry number three. And this is when the Immigrant Song shows up, and it's just awesome. It, it's, it's perfectly patterned, too. They slow down. This is such a brilliant thing. They slow down the action a little bit. It's not full slow-mo. I don't know how to describe it, but the physical tempo of the visuals matches the tempo of the song. There's like a, a repeated wave pattern to it. I don't know how to describe it. You've probably seen it. I'm probably just describing it stupidly, and there's probably an actual way to describe this, but it's just awesome. And I love the way it's presented. This, of course, leads to her throwing the spikes into the ship, which is now when the fourth cavalry shows up. I forgot there's actually a fifth one. This is Scourge, who brings out Des and Troy. I admit, when I saw that in the theaters, I was like, yes! It's Des and Troy! And, and my sister was like, what? It's Des and Troy! God, all oh, right, right. So he, you know, oh, guns his way down, breaks out, breaks away the spikes, oh, fires until he runs out of ammo. Final Fantasy Type Zero joke, and then he dies because, of course, he dies. I mean, he did kind of, you know, he was participant to a lot of pretty horrible stuff, so he kind of had to die. But he did so, proving, proving his worth, proving who he really was. This then leads to Hella freaking out. And the final cavalry, you can't beat me. Yeah, no, but he can. Searcher shows up. Cavalry number five. <laughs> Hi. 
smash it. He's just, what's funny is he sounds like he's having so much fun. Like, oh, finally. You know how long I've waited for this. He doesn't say that, but it, it's in his voice, right? And then Valkyrie gets exactly what she wanted, which was impaling the hell out of Hela with her sword. And then Thor uses that as a lightning rod. <laughs> this, of course, leads to them being like, okay, we're good. And then Hulk is like, going after Searcher. It's like, no, no, Hulk, no, wait. Monster. No, no, it's okay. Oh, fine, whatever. Let's go. Uh, now, I want to talk about one thing. Because I've heard people talk about this, and it actually kind of irritates me a little bit. I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that Hella totally lives through this. I uh, I don't buy that for a millisecond. I'd love to w know why people even think that. The most common theory of her is that she teleported away at the last second. When has she shown any ability to teleport? If she could teleport, she wouldn't need the sword for the Bifrost, among other things. I mean, you could argue that, but... What? No. There's also the fact that it's been made clear many times throughout the whole film, even before she shows up, that she draws power from Asgard. And Asgard just not only got smashed, but then actually detonated down to its core. There's no foundation, as Korg so accurately shows off. So, there's no power anymore. So even if she somehow survived Searcher's massive spike down to the face, she, she's gone. She's, she's dead. Even an Asgardian can die. Right? I hope she's gone. I hope she doesn't come back. She was a very disinteresting character. <sighs> oh, I don't know if I'm ready, guys. So the film wraps up. And they're like, alright, let's, let's go to Earth. Loki and Thor are talking, and then the Sanctuary 2 shows up. Thanos' command ship. I believe this is the first time we see it. Right here. We'll be seeing a lot of it in the future. Yeah, I don't know if I'm ready, guys. But we'll talk about Infinity War next time. Because we're there. And I will see you there.